Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the ETF Show. I'm Tom Bailey, ETF's editor at Interaction Investor. So today we're joined by Rahul Bhushan, co-founder of Rise ETF, and Felix Bordreau, the Chief Sustainability Officer at Sustainable Market Strategies, uh, which recently collaborated with Rise to launch a new ETF, which we're going to start with. So to start, you guys recently launched the, the Rise Environmental Impact 100 USITS ETF, um, with its ticker being LIFE, L-I-F-E. So this ETF aims to invest in 100 companies that are helping to tackle climate change or other, other environmental problems. So perhaps it's best to start with a brief outline of, of what this ETF aims to do. The LIFE uh, ETF is really about environmental impact. So it's the first uh, environmental impact ETF uh, to be launched in Europe. And uh, the focus is to really invest in the top 100 uh, you know, uh, environmental impact companies. And so contrary to other funds you may find out there that focus on either ESG scores or um, carbon footprint or something like that, and they take more of a top-down approach where they they construct the fund based on a certain target. They want a certain score or they want a certain uh, carbon footprint. We kind of flipped it on its head and, and, and took a bottom-up approach and really looked at what are the 100 companies that have the potential to solve the environmental uh, problems that we are facing. And so it's, it's beyond carbon, it's um, um, you know, water pollution, it's air pollution, it's uh, you know, the circular economy, it's, um, it's biodiversity. And by looking at all of the environmental uh, issues that we're trying to solve, we noticed that the EU taxonomy was actually pretty far ahead in developing their taxonomy on, on environmental issues. And so we aligned the, uh, the theme and the sectors of the fund with the uh, EU taxonomy. And so uh, these are the, the six environmental objectives that, that they have. And so we built the fund around those six environmental objectives and we developed a few more subsectors. Um, and so it's a really um, you know, uh, broad environmental uh, fund and it's um, it's fairly unique in 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 the space. So as you, as you said, there's different uh, segments to the to the hundred companies in the ETF. Can you can you break down which of the segments are and say how many companies are in, in in typically one of the segments? Sure. So the the six environmental objectives of the EU taxonomy are the uh, climate change mitigation, climate change adaptation, uh, the protection of water, protection of biodiversity. Um, circular economy and um, pollution control. And so these were the, the environmental objectives. And then we broke down the climate change mitigation into uh, you know, further subsectors because it's, it's such a, a, a broad uh, theme. So we've, we've added uh, themes like the uh, you know, electric vehicles, um, uh, clean, clean energy, uh, etc. So, so we have in total we have ten, ten subsectors, and the breakdown uh, it's it's when you look at the subsectors, we actually have a fairly good representation of all the sectors: um, circular economy, water, and uh, and uh, climate change are are well represented. Some themes are a little bit more difficult uh, to invest in right now. So themes like Climate change adaptation is is um, notoriously difficult to find um, kind of pu publicly listed companies invested in that. It's typically 
the role um, of governments and NGOs and other um, more public sectors, but we still found some 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 com companies, and we actually think that it's a it's a theme that will become increasingly popular. So the the whole nature-based solutions, biodiversity, uh, you know, protection is going to be um, you know the next big environmental objective for a lot of uh, you know companies, and so we wanted to already have a good methodology to uh, assess uh, the impact potential of those companies so that when they they actually come uh, on board and they and they do IPOs and they and they become investable we we have a good solution so I want you to walk us through how you decide which companies go in which part of the segment uh, so what kind of just from your starting point what's the entire universe of stocks you pick from and then how you how you judge those stocks for how they should fit into these different segments so the 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 way we uh, populated the universe and and ranked the companies, uh, we use basically two scores. So one is the thematic purity score, where we look at um, you know what percentage of revenues of a company uh, could be associated with with a, a certain environmental objective. And so um, you know a company that is a, is has some solutions for water. Um, uh, cleaning, um, et cetera, they, they would get a certain, you know, we would look at all publicly available documents um, and we would, you know, try to, to map the revenues from that company to the environmental objectives. And so that would give us a, a, a purity score. And then we would look at the impact potential of that, of that company. So the impact uh, score is actually broken down into a few elements. So we look at the impact potential of the the theme itself. So for example, hydrogen is a very potentially impactful technology. We know it would solve a lot of problems. So any com companies invested in hydrogen uh, would get a pretty high impact score, but the economic feasibility of hydrogen is still um, you know, difficult to be proven. So it's they would get a bit uh, of, a, of a lesser score there because we know it's a it's a impactful technology, but a bit less likely to be to become uh, you, you know to come quickly. And then the third part is the basically the leadership um, you know of that company within that space. So certain companies are are better positioned to benefit from. Um, you know the potential of of a of a technology, and so we would look at the various uh, internal uh, policies of that company, the level of investment in R and D, the number of patents they have, uh, etc. And based on those factors, we basically built a uh, you know an impact score that then ranked. Um, the entire universe, uh, and 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 then we we pick the top 100 to invest in. Are there any companies in the ETF or index you'd want to highlight? Uh, yeah, there there are some um, you know companies, and and that's where sometimes we we uh, stand out compared to other funds is that you won't find a lot of um, you know information technology uh, companies in our fund because since we focus on the uh, impact potential, so more for forward-looking uh, view of of, uh, uh, of 
you know, environmental impact, we, we actually invest in companies that are in these, uh, you know, industries that require a lot of investment and a lot of R&D. And so we have some, for example, a lot of industrials, uh, you know, companies in, for example, in energy efficiency, uh, we have companies like, you know, Johnson Controls, who developed a lot of, um, you know, energy efficiency solutions um, in the, uh, you know, engineering side of things. We have companies like uh, Arcadis, which is one of the few companies that um, is really um, ha has a great experience in uh, nature-based solutions and, uh, you know, developing solutions to, to adapt to the climate change impacts that we're seeing. So they, for example, they developed a lot of projects on sponge cities where they, um, you know, designed ways for cities to really deal with the increased uh, risks of floods and, uh, and of, uh, you know, water, um, you know, filtration, so natural filtration systems and stuff like that. So this is a, a, a good, a good example for the, the climate, you know, resilience and the nature-based solutions. Um, and then in um, water technologies, there's a, a Kurita, a Japanese, very innovative company that, um, you know, has been around for, for almost a hundred years and they really develop um, very innovative solutions that have, you know, that have a very great impact on people because we're talking uh, clean water for, for people, but also um, cleaning all the water that the, the, the heavy industry uh, uses. So you already mentioned kind of uh, how, how this ETF differs from uh, other other uh, funds and, and products in, in in the ESG impact investing space, um, and obviously it's a very uh, hot topic right now the idea of greenwashing and how lots of funds claiming to be in this sort of impact ethical environmental investing area don't quite live up to the promises. I would you walk us through your thoughts on what greenwashing is and how you know you've ensured that this product is not a greenwash product. Sure, and yeah, that's a very uh, that's a great question and, and very uh, topical these days. We're seeing a lot of discussions around that. And, you know, the main issue on, you know, greenwashing and, and for, for us as a firm, we're really specialized in environmental, you know, technologies. Um, and then we've kind of added the, um, you know, the financial kind of side to, to our firm. So we're, we're really able, I think, to, um, you know, to screen for companies that, prop, you know, hopefully stay away from the whole greenwashing thing. And one way of doing this is not using, basically, um, standard ESG scoring that, you know, so many people use a little bit blindly, and, you know, because this is a little bit uh, easier for companies to to play that that score. They can, without changing that much, uh, they can increase their score. Uh, substantially, and so we really want to take a a, a forward-looking approach, and and we basically ignore all of the ESG uh, uh, scores. We use it more as an input, and then we mostly focus on the potential of the, you know, technologies and the services that is, you know, that companies are providing to see if if that in itself will solve or not the environmental issues that we are facing. Um, and so I think 
that obviously re requires more work and uh, more knowledge and more expertise. And that's, uh, that's what we bring to the table. Thanks. So my next question is for Rahul. Um, so it's all very convincing. But why is a, a index tracking ETF the best structure for your strategy? There's obviously you could input this in, in, in different ways with different products, different approaches, passive, active. Why why a index tracking ETF for who? So I think there's two two core reasons. One is um, we're still in the in the relatively early stages of the green revolution, and this is this is not going to happen over a decade. This is going to be a multi-year or sorry multi-decade um, uh, investment um, story. And so for us, um, you know, taking an active approach today um, felt quite too, felt a little too soon um, because what you're effectively doing is you're taking an, a universe uh, of, of environment, uh, companies associated with the environment. Let's say there's an index out there of 300, 400 names, and you're basically trying to decide which 30 companies are going to win, you know, 20 years from now. And for us, uh, that didn't feel like it didn't feel like it was the right time to basically make um, those kinds of long-term um, um, or take those kind of long-term views and 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 have those sort of long-term convictions. So for us, the, the sensible approach was okay. Let's just find the top 100 companies in the environmental universe and let's allocate to the companies by reference to the extent of their potential future environmental impact. And so that's what's happening in this process in this fund is we're picking a hundred companies, the top 100 companies from that broader list of companies um, within the environmental sector and, and and really looking for those with the with the ability to to make the greatest contribution towards environmental sustainability within their respective subsector. And Felix talked a little bit about the subsectors. So that was the process here. Um, the second element, um, I think, for why we chose to go uh, systematic or, or passive or index-based, if you will, is uh, is the the discipline it brings. So, you know, when you're investing in an area like the environment or for toward environmental sustainability in general, you want to bring a level of discipline um, to the investment process, which isn't influenced by short-term behaviors and uh, short-term convictions, perhaps, um, and so. The index approach, in, in our view, um, removes emotion from the equation and, and implements a series of systematic rules that um, are fully transparent, are publicly available. We make all of our documents publicly available. Anybody can go on our website and look at um, what the investment strategy is doing on a day-to-day. -day. It's uh, documented in the index methodology. All the scores Felix talked about are also documented in the, in the index methodology. Um, as well as the subsectors that we're investing in, as well as the environmental objectives. So everything is in there. And as an investor, you have a transparent methodology, a transparent investment process, and um, also the certainty that you know there's some discipline to the process. Because again, we're not trying to, we're, we're not. Uh, this isn't a product where you go in and 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 you walk away with twice the amount of money. You know, six months down the line, this is a product that um, you go in with the conviction that. Um, these environmental companies are going to be much bigger in five years, a decade from now, than they are today. Okay, so, uh, moving on to some of Rise ETF's other other products. Um, so it was about a year ago uh, you launched the Rise Education Tech 
and Digital Learning ETF, ticker LEARN, spelled L-E-R-N. Um, do you want to just briefly walk us through the kind of ETF strategy here? Sure. So um, the, the LEARN ETF um, is a, a fund that's um, trying to invest in the digitization of education. So we saw during the pandemic that um, a lot of students shifted to, in the same way as a lot of workers shifted from work to work from home, a lot of students also shifted to um, learn from home. And that was true, you know, irrespective of whether you the students were in sort of K-12, you know, uh, higher education. Um, but also we saw a, a big uptake last year of, of, of employees, um, you know, already working for, for particular institutions, now working from home, um, trying to further develop their skills. And um, there's a number of companies that have also emerged in that sort of workforce subsector where, you know, which is really truly about this, this, this idea of um, lifelong learning. Because gone are the days where you could pick up a degree at university and expect to have one job for you know thirty years until you retire, and effectively just 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 working for one company for that entire period. I think with the inherent disruption and and digitization that we're seeing in society today, it's never been more important for people to just um, uh, move away from that sort of thinking and and really think about learning as a as a lifelong. Um, um, uh, uh, as a lifelong thing, so you've actually seen a number of um, a number of um, uh, companies operating within that workforce subsector, which is really about upskilling, reskilling uh, people, um, and and also developing people's soft sk- soft, uh, softer skills as they move it into leadership or management type of positions. Um, so we've seen a, a, a big a boost to the revenues of, of of these companies, particularly in the West. Um, over the last couple of uh, last you know few years, so that's been a, that was something that we were watching, and what we wanted to effectively do is to capture all of these opportunities, um, um, which really are um, about delivering education digitally um, in in both the West as well as in the East within within one investment fund, and that's what we did in in, in the Learn Fund. We launched it in October, um, and it's been um, I think you know. Almost a year now that the fund has been live. So um, obviously, uh, launching a digital education focus ETF a few months into a pandemic that forced uh, schools and university students to to all start learning from home, and also as you mentioned, the, the trend towards those in the workforce also learning at home during the lockdowns and stuff. It seems quite fortuitous. Uh, was this ETF in the works before COVID and lockdowns, or did you perhaps launch it in response to this? So we actually had it in development um, from I think it was. December 2019 is when we when we chose to to explore the the industry a little further. Um, there were already actually some some champions um, that were sort of visible within the edtech sector back then. You know, even prior to the pandemic, um, obviously they saw a big boost uh, over the course of last year in particular. But you know, some of these companies are are are, are you know were already pretty established names. You know, the Chegs of the world, the Two U's of the world in the U.S. These were already established names. Um, a friend of mine actually sold a company to Chegg, you know, um, in, in 2011. So he, he set up a company back in um, 2010 while he was at Stanford, and he, he basically grew it to to a particular size, and then he sold it to Chegg. So I was actually aware of Chegg for for almost 10 years, but it was interesting to see this company go public and then just go from strength to strength to strength. 
And so we've always sort of tried to keep um, an ear to the ground and look at what the venture capitalists are doing and um, look for look for thematic ideas there. And this one really sprung from that same same process. Um, and um, like you said, it was a bit fortuitous that you know we we ended up uh, beginning to develop this this thematic fund right around the same time as as the pandemic was happening, and then you know the the pandemic boost so to speak happened and and these companies um experienced you know quite a quite a decent surge in 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 their revenues over the course of um over, over the course of 2020 oh while there's uh, been an online and digital enabled learning boom uh one of the biggest markets for in recent months has been having a bit of a tough time i'm talking about obviously china uh so uh, recent months the chinese government has launched a crackdown on digital learning for school students in particular and it's taken a serious toll on the share price of some big names in the sector, which are included in the ETF's portfolio. Do you want to walk us through what's going on here? Yeah, it's a, it's a really it's a really good point, and uh, certainly one we're we're talking to investors about quite a lot um, um, in in the last couple of weeks. You know this this idea of regulatory risk that that is can be embedded in uh, well virtually any any investment product out there, but um, certainly products that have greater exposure to, uh, let's say, emerging markets. You know, Argentina has defaulted a number of times. And, um, you know, China in this case, um, you know, there seems to be a lot of geopolitical tension, of course. But at the same time, um, China has been cracking down on its tech industry, um, perhaps because it's it's getting too big and they want to rein in, you know, the so-called tech billionaires. Um, or perhaps, you know, they, they want to assert, um, you know, a certain level of control through, you know, uh, quasi-nationalism of certain companies, but I think the the biggest story as it relates to um, edtech in China really is uh, them trying to find a, a sort of an antidote to their their demographic problem. So much like in many countries in the West, China today has a big demographic problem. Its uh, population is getting old, and um, they have uh, they have way more men than they have women. Um, it's also becoming uh, increasingly expensive to to live in China and 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 to um, have a you know a, a, li- a good a decent enough affordable lifestyle in China because property prices are rising and the country has developed rather quickly and um, in all in not in all cases where where wages have have kept, kept pace so there is this demographic issue which they're now experiencing which. Um, um, is also a result, of course, of the one-child policy, which they had for for a very long time to to control their population. So now they're trying to effectively reverse that. And one of the industries they've been uh, focused on is is edtech specifically because um, a lot of uh, Chinese parents send their children to um, after-school tutoring classes. And um, like you said, Tom. A lot of the companies within the edtech sector are in China and, and effectively catering to this after-school tutoring market um, and weekend tutoring specifically. And so the Chinese government has looked at this and said, "Well, look, it's really it's it's becoming really expensive for people to have children uh, because education costs are are also rising quite rapidly. And and over and above that, we have to these these parents are having to send their children to these weekend schools because if they don't." All the other parents are doing it, and their children are going to fall behind. So, to encourage people to have more children, effectively, they're now trying to look for um, for um, you know new ways to 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 effectively encourage that encourage um, you know procreation within the country. And so, 
you effectively have them now eyeing this ed tech sector, and they've they've um, they're going to be imposing you know quite strict regulation and trying to rein in the sector. And one of the things they've said is that they want to turn um, K twelve education, so the early stage um, or early childhood to sort of um, end of high school um, education to uh, for profit uh, to non profit um, uh, status. So effectively, you know. Um, not allowing private companies to compete in that space to um, the, the, end, the end objective being, of course, to, to lower the, the cost of, 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 of the child's ed- education. Um, and, so, and so that's been, um, you know, interesting, but also quite uh, painful to see, you know, within, within the fund because it's affected the share price of a lot of um, these Chinese ed- edtech companies. Um, and so the fund, as a result, have, has taken a hit. Um, and so... At the moment, the fund has roughly, you know, 25 or a little less than 25% exposure to Chinese companies. And, um, and it's, uh, we, we expect this to be sort of a re-rating phase for the industry because a lot of these Chinese companies are, well, number one, they're going to have to divest from, from the K-12 um, subsector, which they're involved in. And as they do that, they're going to have to reorient their businesses towards uh, more higher education and more workforce-oriented learning. And so... As that transition happens, um, we'll see some, um, um, you know, quite a lot of M and A activity, most likely within within the Chinese edtech industry, but also, um, you know, these these companies trying to effectively find their feet again. Uh, and um, the long term thesis for us within the fund remains intact um, because, you know, ultimately this is a global story. And so, if you know, or the representation of China shrinks within the fund, the representation of other countries, um, we expect to to grow over time. Um, because we're, we're already seeing, you know, this year we've seen um, a number of IPOs. We saw Coursera, um, we saw KeyPath in, in Australia, we saw um, the Europe's first uh, unicorn out of, out of Austria within the edtech space. So there's no slowdown in edtech activity. Um, but what we're, what we're expecting to see is a, uh, is a, is a, a shift away from um, edtech uh, funding, you know, going in, in, into companies in China towards perhaps other emerging markets and then also in the US and Europe. Interesting. Uh, moving on to another notable ETF of yours, it's the, uh, the RISE Medical Cannabis and Life Science ETF, uh, its ticker being FLWR, I pronounced flower. Uh, so this ETF performed very well since it launched. Um, I was wondering if you could walk through why you think investors should invest in cannabis. Absolutely. So. We've always seen the cannabis story as, as being effectively three waves. Um, the first wave being the Canadian LPs wave, where um, you saw this big period or two, three year period of, of um, irrational, let's call it ex- exuberance. This is sort of 2016, 2017, where you basically saw a flurry of IPOs on the back of the legalization of recreational cannabis in Canada. Um, and all these IPOs coming to market and their share price, um, you know, going uh, straight to the moon. Um, and that was met with a lot of expectations from investors for these companies to deliver. And of course, they didn't deliver. And so 2018 was a big re-rating phase for, for the Canadian LPs. And then began sort of the second wave of cannabis, as we like to call it, which is really the US MSO wave, um, which also ties into some of the more liberalization, the, the liberalization of, of cannabis um, at the state level, which we saw over the course of 2018-19, um, where a lot of states um, uh, independently went and legalized uh, cannabis for medicinal as well as for recreational use um, across the country. Today, you know, there is over 
there's 50 states in the, in the, in the United States and uh, more than uh, 35 states have, have some, fo- some form of legalized medical cannabis program. So um, that sort of state legalization wave really began at sort of 2018, 2019, <clears throat> and really has been accelerating since. Just this, this, just this year, you know, since the Biden election, we're talking about um, 11 states having, having passed cannabis reform. So, you know, that's, that's, you know, less than a year. Um, and so we are seeing this U.S. MSO wave. When we say MSO, we mean U.S. multi-state operator, operators. And that's been an interesting wave to see um, because the U.S. Um, represents a, a significantly bigger market than Canada. You know, just the potential market in Florida alone is, is, is as big as Canada. So, you know, the U.S. potential, the potential of the U.S. cannabis market both for medicinal as well as uh, adult use has has quite a lot of potential. So, so that's the sort of second wave. We think that's that's moving and happening right now. We also see the third wave emerging at the same time, which is really what we like to denote the pharmaceutical cannabis wave, which is really the efficacy led um, medicinal wave, where um, you know we are actually going to see um, a number of and we're already seeing, in fact, and, and investors can, can go into our fund and look at some of the names, but we're already seeing a number of companies popping up that are trying to understand the more than 110 different cannabinoids, flavonoids, terpenes within the cannabis plant and understand what their medical properties are and then try to create uh, both um, synthetic as well as uh, non-synthetic medicines that can, that can help people. And this is, I think, one of the one of the most interesting areas uh, within the space for us. Um, certainly, from a European perspective, this um, this was um, an, the area that our investors were were most interested in. Was really the the sort of um, pharmaceutical subset of companies uh, within within the cannabis space. And so, these are the companies we've packaged in a fund. The other dimension to the third wave, which is again the pharmaceutical wave, is that this is the one we expect to go global. Um, it's uh, hard to take a, a, a long-term view or, or, or high, have a high conviction view on how fast recreational cannabis or adult use cannabis goes global, but it's far easier to have a view on how fast the medical cannabis wave goes, glo- goes global. You know, today we, we already have uh, more than 70 countries with um, a legalized cannabis program that compares to, you know, less than 10 just a decade ago. And the num- number of countries that are passing cannabis reform, liberalizing um, and, and destigmatizing this plant and really starting to rethink how it can, used, can be used for medicinal purposes and then getting involved in that industry is, is rapidly accelerating. And so um, it's an exciting place for us, but uh, that's really the, the backstory, if you will, for, for this fund and, and why we created it. No, it's very interesting. Um, but of course, cannabis remains uh, an illegal drug in the United Kingdom. Um, and so I can imagine some listeners might be a bit confused of how you can legally invest in, 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 a, in a product which is illegal in, in this country. So I wonder if you could talk through the kind of the, the legal side of, of all this. Sure. So, um, so medical cannabis is legal um, in, in the UK. So we're investing in global medical cannabis companies. Nothing that we're investing in is plant touching. Um, you know, this this fund has been approved by the Central Bank of Ireland, the FCA. Um, you know, all the all the um, the exchange, the London Stock Exchange. Uh, we've had legal advice when we were putting the fund together, so as to ensure we implemented a process 
to, to get all these um, individual regulatory and legal bodies uh, comfortable with the fund. So this is a, not a fund that took us you know, two weeks. This is a fund that took us the best part of two years. Um, and um, when we put the fund together, uh, we were aware that it would take us two years, but it was quite important for us to be early to the opportunity because you know, a lot of the time with these kind of new and emerging sectors, um, you, um, if, if you get in too late, you, you've kind of lost that, that initial momentum. And so what we wanted to uh, really do here is, is, is uh, create a vehicle that allowed investors to get in early and access the opportunity early. Um, and um, like you said, it's been a really positively performing ETF this year. We think, um, we think the, um, the um, secular growth story is, is still intact. Um, and, um, you know, what's, what's interesting about these type of thematic opportunities that are new, in our view, is that they do provide these sort of asymmetric risk returns. Because, you know, either, either this, 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 this entire industry, you know, goes to zero, which we think is a very low probability, or it becomes significantly bigger than, than it is today. There's estimates out there that cannabis can, the, the cannabis industry as a whole, um, especially given its, its pharmaceutical dimension, has the potential to be, um, you know, as big as any other pharmaceutical subset out there. So um, it's really exciting for us um, to, to be looking at the space and monitoring, you know, new and exciting companies to, to invest in. Great. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, th- thanks Rahul. And uh, thanks, thanks Felix. And thank you all for listening. Uh, please like and subscribe. And of course, you can find loads more investment ideas and insights at ii.co.uk. I'll be back next month for another episode of the ETF show. Bye for now.